This is a diet of Brussels. What's going to happen in the next six months? This is episode 200 of a diet of uh, Brussels. I'm not entirely sure how we've managed to get quite so far. Uh, it certainly wasn't my plan, uh, whenever it was 19 months ago, uh, when the British general election returned David Cameron to power. And I thought it might be an idea to start doing some podcasts now and again uh, about that. So here we are. Uh, I don't know how many days of recording uh, later we are, but several. Uh, 200 episodes. Uh, the previous episode talked about what's happened in those first six months since the referendum result back in June. Uh, this one's going to look ahead to the next six months because I think the next six months really are going to be crucial in understanding where Brexit takes the UK and the EU. Let's remind ourselves of uh, uh, what we expect to happen in that period of time. By the time that we reach the first anniversary of the referendum on the 23rd of June 2017, the UK should have made its official notification to Article uh, 50 to start the process of leaving the EU. At the point that it does that, it starts the two-year uh, period that negotiations need to be completed in uh, or for the UK to then leave without a deal. Uh, by that anniversary date as well, we will have had the uh, Dutch elections, we will have had the French uh, presidentials, uh, which uh, might return uh, an important uh, change of leadership. Well, it will return an important change of leadership because it won't be Francois Hollande. Um, we will possibly have had Italian elections, or at the very least the groundwork for those to come through. We will have had the start of the Trump presidency in the United States. In short, we'll have had a lot of things that uh, matter both specifically to uh, Brexit, but also contextually for the environment in which Brexit operates. So let's think about those two things together. There's been some debates in recent weeks about why Theresa May is going for the end of March uh, 2017 as her point of notification. Uh, and this has been uh, suggested uh, in the past few days, it's actually the worst time that you could imagine that it'll be uh, just before the French uh, elections, so nothing will happen in that first period, and then almost immediately we run into German electoral season uh, for the autumn, uh, and remember that German elections not only will take time for campaigning, but also they will need a substantial time after the election results to agree whatever coalition uh, is almost certain to be required uh, for a government to have a majority. So it might well be that the whole of 2017, nothing actually happens in terms of substantive negotiating points. So you've lost uh, potentially nine months of your two-year period. Uh, and as uh, been noted by Michel Barnier in recent weeks, you're going to have to leave some uh, months at the end of the two-year period for everyone to go off and ratify uh, the deal if you're going to hit your two-year window. So you're losing maybe half of your negotiating time, uh, which already was not enough time to do very much uh, in the first place. The reason simply is that Theresa May uh, was elected by her party 
uh, MPs uh, on the basis that she would notify Article 50 as soon as possible, which then became early in 2017. And late March is almost by definition the last point that you could say is early in 2017. It's the end of the first quarter. Now, uh, I, I think that there is really no more science or thoughts to it than that, that that was as far back as she could push Article 50 notification uh, without uh, causing immediate uh, ruptures and uh, ructions within her party. Uh, and I think this is the key point to remember, is that uh, May is largely bound by what her party want rather than by what the country wants. The country doesn't really know what it wants, and uh, endless opinion polls have told us that, that yes, people want to control uh, free movements, but they also want to have market access, uh, they want to have all the benefits, none of the costs, uh, and uh, if you offer them different alternatives, then you're going to get... Uh, a whole series of mutually uh, incompatible uh, answers. So public opinion is largely uh, introite and really uh, uh, unformed. And uh, that's going to remain the case until somebody comes up with a clear plan or vision of what the future looks like. And everyone's trying ideas from that, but it remains very uh, vague and uh, unprecise uh, and is likely to for a considerable period of time. Uh, henceforward. By March, Theresa May has to have worked out what it is she is going to try and secure, uh, and particularly the balance between limiting free movement of people and retaining access to the single market. Now, uh, she's been very cautious about uh, what she says substantively, she only never talks about controlling free movement, she doesn't talk about stopping free movement, and she talks about access rather than membership of uh, the single market. And she's been very careful not to talk about uh, limiting budgetary contributions, which is becoming uh, clear that there will have to be uh, post-exit uh, monies paid into the EU, uh, either on a one-off basis or on a standing basis. And also she's not talked very much about limiting the role of the uh, European Court of Justice uh, because if she does push for remaining part of something like the European Economic Area then uh, the court uh, is going to play uh, a quite substantial role in uh, policing that. So there's... Uh, a whole range of issues that she has to try and sort out. Uh, as I've said in the previous podcast, the fact she hasn't managed to sort that out now in the first six months doesn't hold out much hope for the next three months uh, that are coming, that it's really hard to see how she can uh, find uh, a way of uh, keeping everybody happy. Well, it's actually impossible to keep everybody happy, but keep enough people happy for long enough. And uh, there's probably going to be a very late splurge uh, in late February, about the time that the government produces the plans it's committed to holding, uh, which uh, will then feed into the notification process. The joker in the pack here, obviously, is uh, what happens with the Supreme Court, which will be giving its ruling uh, early in January about whether the government has to get parliamentary approval through a, uh, a bill 
of Parliament. Now, if it upholds the High Court ruling, which at the moment looks entirely likely, then the government will try and push through a one-line bill which says Parliament hereby authorises the government to give notification uh, of Article 50. And it will hope that it can avoid any uh, battle over amendments, uh, on scrutiny, on objectives or anything else, or on a second referendum. Uh, it will try and keep it very, very tight. Now, uh, that will be a battle of the wills, and if you listen to uh, one of my earlier podcasts in the series, uh, a few episodes back, I talk a lot more about the High Court ruling, what it does and doesn't mean. So the spring might see a period of intense parliamentary activity, which uh, at the very least will be a distraction from the main event, which is the notification itself. We need to not confuse how notification happens and then what stated objectives the UK comes into notification with. And those are two very different uh, kinds of things. And one of the things I think we'll want to watch is how the government tries to balance that. That you, you might argue, if you were being cynical, that uh, the Supreme Court uh, will provide a nice diversionary tactic that there can be a lot of ire about the process, which might distract attention from the content of notification. But we'll see, and I think that will become clearer in uh, January, February, as we know a bit more. Once we've got then notification, we are going to go uh, immediately into practicalities. I think the first couple of months will be uh, very broad brushstrokes of timetables, agreeing uh, a schedule of meetings. Maybe we'll have a high-level uh, meeting at the European Council level at that point, but it's hard to see that uh, really developing very fast. So certainly by the time we reach the one year anniversary, I don't think we'll have seen very much progress uh, at all on this, despite everyone saying that they want to have a speedy resolution. Key point here, if we haven't had notification by the end of March, then the process becomes suddenly much less clear and certain. If uh, the government is embroiled in uh, parliamentary battles about the notification bill. That's one thing. But any other reason that is given for delaying notification means that Brexit suddenly becomes much more questionable. And certainly there are plenty of observers out there who would argue that uh, Brexit is still not going to happen, that it's... Uh, uh, complexities and its pains will become more and more obvious to more and more people to the point that then actually there are second thoughts about this. Now, uh, I'm not sure I completely buy that line, but I do take the line that if we haven't reached notification uh, by the end of March, which is the stated policy of this government, then at the very least we have to seriously question whether this government has any future, uh, certainly under Theresa May. And if we haven't had notification by the first anniversary, then I think uh, a lot of bets are off on whether Brexit actually will happen. So that's why the six months period really matters. Now, this is where we come to the context uh, aspect of uh, Brexit. The elections uh, in Europe are potentially going to change the pattern of preferences amongst the 27. Uh, the most obvious uh, question mark is over France. Uh, whilst it still looks unlikely that Marine Le Pen le will secure the presidential 
uh, elections in France. Uh, I've been through enough in this past year, and so have you, to know that uh, really unlikely things sometimes happen. Now, uh, what makes it less likely than we might have thought is that François Fillon, uh, who was a former prime minister and quite far on the right uh, in uh, the centre of the spectrum, uh, is going to be the the right's candidate. And he potentially draws away some votes from Le Pen. That, however, needs to be balanced against the fact that Le Pen also has a strong constituency on the left as she speaks to the the equivalent of the left behinds uh, in France, that uh, the failure of the Socialist Party under François Hollande to really connect with working-class voters uh, has been picked up by the FN and will make her a formidable opponent. So I think most people expect her to get into the second round against Fillon. Uh, we still wait to see who the left's candidate is. But in any case, France is heading towards the right, whether that's Le Pen or Fillon. Uh, attitudes are going to harden. Now, uh, as uh, you will have heard in the recording of the panel that uh, we had last week with UK and Changing Europe and the CER, France has never really thought of its uh, relationship with the UK in terms of the EU, that it's a, a very unique kind of relationship. That it's always thought of it in terms of security, of, uh, of global roles, uh, and that won't change. But uh, someone like Fillon uh, might well just be keen to make even more of uh, the UK's departure, um, and certainly the French are going to carry on being keen to support the Brexit means Brexit line, and that the UK, if it's going, is going properly rather than sort of half in, half out. The joker on the side of the context, I think, is Trump. Uh, as you will have noticed in the many hours of recordings, I've never really talked about US politics, uh, except possibly about Barack Obama. Uh, Trump will matter because Trump's presidency changes the global system. Uh, and what's going to be particularly important is the uh, attitude towards trying to agree a deal speedily with the UK on trade. That replacing TTIP with uh, uh, a straight bilateral UK-US deal might be something he goes for, in which case that strengthens the hand of our hard Brexiters uh, in the UK. Um, and if he doesn't, which is actually possibly more likely given that he seems to have a strong protectionist uh, bent to his, uh, his worldview, that then actually that makes it much harder for the UK, that if it can't uh, get close with its special partner across the pond, uh, if we can't leverage Nigel Farage's uh, great friendship uh, with Donald, then there is going to be uh, a real difficulty of saying how the UK is able to pursue uh, uh, the global trader role that uh, many in the Leave campaign talked about. So Trump matters. And the real problem here is that nobody knows what Trump is going to do. Uh, one might even suggest that Trump himself doesn't know what he's going to do, but, uh, well, that's uh, for somebody else to, to blog and podcast about. So it's really only going to be after his inauguration in January that we are going to get a sense of what his administration might actually practically do. And again, it might be that he really doesn't care very much about the international system at all, uh, and about trading relations, because he'll be preoccupied with domestic agendas. But 
that I think will be part of the calculation that will inform British uh, attitudes and EU27 attitudes. So, in short, the next six months are, I think, points of crystallisation. All of the things that have happened between uh, the referendum and now have been precursors. They've laid the groundwork for some decisions, they've pushed people towards some options uh, and away from others. But it will really be in this next uh, period of time that hard decisions will be made. So three things to look out for then. Firstly, does the UK actually trigger Article 50? That's probably the most crucial question. If it doesn't, it sticks to its timeline of late March notification, which I, I find hard to imagine, but it might happen, then we have to have big question marks over Brexit uh, altogether as a project. Secondly, as and when there is notification, what does the UK ask for? What's its hierarchy of objectives? Is the priority about control or is it about uh, participation? And thirdly, we need to keep in mind uh, the wider context. Are the winds favourable to uh, a speedy uh, resolution of negotiations? So we need to think a bit about who comes to power in various elections. We need to think about what those new people do in terms of substantive policy. I'm going to carry on uh, podcasting, uh, certainly through this year and by the looks of it for the rest of my natural born life. Uh, you don't have to keep listening, but I really hope you do because it's been really good getting your input in on this. So as I wish you uh, a happy Christmas and a happy new year for 2016. Uh, I just want to say thank you once again for your listening, for your comments. If you have suggestions, again, you're always really welcome to send me a tweet uh, at Adata Brussels or go to the website, which is www.adatabrussels.com and you can contact me there online. I've not said no to a request for an episode yet, uh, even when it involved sport. So just uh, give me your questions. I'm really happy to plug away uh, at doing that. So uh, as I bring episode 200 to a close, here's to the next 200, he said wearily. Happy Christmas. <laughs>